our study in 2 Peter. So if you've got your Bible, your app, whatever you need to do to follow along, you can always find the message notes on tcbchurch.org or on the TCB Church app. I encourage you to use those. And I, I, just a, a, really a little bit of a, a kind of a word of advice, and I hope you'll do something here. As we preach through books of the Bible, which is our pattern at Tri-Cities Baptist Church, man, if you miss a Sunday, get online, listen to that sermon, download the podcast, whatever you're doing, and kind of just stay with us. This is one of those weeks, it's almost a part two of what was last week, and if you weren't here and didn't get a chance to listen to last week, I want to encourage you, get back online listen to that. Maybe this is your first Sunday here. That's great. Jump back online and listen to last week. It'll help this week make sense. And then what's going to happen is you're going to go, oh, I need to listen to the week before that. And you will, and you'll just have to catch up through the whole thing, but you'll have a blast. It'll be great. That was, that was, that was a little bit more of a smile than that. Second Peter chapter one, okay? So we're picking back up in verse five, just a reminder of where we were at last week. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Last week, we focused on this big truth that Jesus' followers strive to feed their faith. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Earlier in chapter 1, Peter's made it clear that those in Jesus have obtained a faith that identifies us with him not just in the kingdom to come, but in this very world, and has given us everything that we need to live a life of godliness. And now that faith that we have obtained, it is not passive. It's not just something that we kind of compartmentalize into a closet within our life. No, that faith is active in us. It's transforming us. It is at work in us. It compels us, changes us, grows us. And so we focused on one big idea last week. It is that Jesus' followers then have obtained a faith that is craving to be fed. Now, we know that our righteousness, our standing before God is 100% in Jesus, that our faith is in him and completely in him. It's not 99% Jesus and 1% you. It is 100% him. For those in Jesus, we stand before God with his righteousness, with his holiness bestowed upon us. And so when we're talking about our faith, that is craving to be fed, we have to just pause and understand we're not talking about earning somehow our righteousness or our position before the Lord. That is secure in Christ. It's who he is. 
It has been declared on us. Big fancy theological word, justification. You've been justified before God. Declared righteous before God. But there is a work in us, transforming us into what we have been declared to be. It's making us into the image of Christ, into Christ's likeness. It is growing us into his holiness, compelling us, convicting us when we try to go back to the old things, compelling us in the power of the Spirit to put on the new. And that work is happening in our life because as a Jesus follower, we have obtained this saving faith. In verse 3, we have been called or set apart by Jesus to his own glory and excellence. Our saving faith craves Christ-likeness. Our justification craves sanctification. We long to be what we have been declared to be because in our faith that we have obtained, we acknowledge in it that left to ourselves, we are dead. But in Christ Jesus, there is life and abundance and eternity, everything. And so we make every effort it is a prescriptive call to diligent action, to do what it takes, to take on the expense, to apply all diligence, to supplement our faith, to feed it, that it might grow and expand and saturate through every aspect of our life and being. That word supplement, the general meaning there is just to nourish, to grow. It's where we're kind of using the word feed. Seems like an incredible thing to obtain a faith that is craving. I, I don't know if you've ever like just had something revealed to you that is so powerful that it just captivated you, even if just for a moment. It compelled you, it drew you in. This faith is so powerful, and yet it, it is at work in us, compelling us to grow, to feed it, to meet the expense, to do whatever is needed to supply it. And the point that is so crucial here is to understand that we are not simply to wait for our faith to grow. Instead, we actively feed it. And we got to be honest, and for just a second, just, just be real with yourselves. It feels very expensive to feed our faith. Man, it, it, it costs us our pride. It costs us our time. 
It costs us so many of the things in our flesh we would want to do. And so as we approach a conversation about feeding our faith, there is in us almost this natural fleshly reaction to somehow excuse ourselves from making every effort to distance ourselves from that because it feels so expensive. I have one child and she is a girl. My heart goes out to you who have parented teenage boys. I do not know how you afford to feed them. It is insane how much food they can eat. It's incredible to me. I feel like every mom of like a teenage boy is like, like has one of those Mary Poppins bags that stuff just keeps coming out. I don't even know how it's possible. It, it's expensive. I thought I'd at least get one amen from that. It's expensive. We're getting there. But man, does it not feel expensive to feed our faith? Now, we know, it, we know it's a lie because we know in our faith left ourselves death in Christ Jesus everything. But that battle with our flesh is at work in us and it is, man, it tempts us. And so there's this desire to excuse ourselves from this. But last week we reminded ourselves to grow into Christ's likeness is quite literally to take up our cross, die to self, and find life in him. And that there is no way in our flesh we will feel like this is something we want to do. Instead, we will only choose to do so because of the great grace that abounds in our living hope, because of our knowledge of God, because of our faith obtained. And so we just really quick are reminding ourselves that we have been called and set apart to the very glory and excellence of Christ Jesus. And as a result, we have obtained a faith that compels us to make every effort to feed and to grow more into his image, to take on the cost to do whatever we can to feed that faith, because that faith is our hope, is our life. And so... We introduce a new big idea today, an implication of this truth. And it gets at first the question of why is this important? So we're going to come back to the list in just a minute, and we're going to talk about how we feed our faith, what Peter says about how we go about doing this. But first, I want to remind you that it's important. So notice there are benefits of nourishing our faith, and there are dangers of depriving our faith. Skip down to verse eight. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. 
For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Real quick, notice two qualifiers. These qualities that we're going to look at in just a minute, okay? First, these qualities are yours. That's what he's saying. These qualities are present in your life. Second qualifier, these qualities are saturating. They're taking over your life. That's what Peter means when he uses the word increasing here. It's more than just improving. It, it's, that's a part of it, but the text implies a little bit more than that. So sometimes we think of increasing and we're just very uh, linear in it. I'm going to be 1% better tomorrow than I am today. And then I'm going to improve another 1% and another 1%. I'm just going to keep growing and growing. And that's there, but that's not exactly the word picture that's being described here. It's more than just increasing. It's saturating. You know, our pathway that we hold up that frames discipleship, they're just words. They're, they're just six words that frame some degree of categorical progression in our sanctification. But it ends with the word saturation. There's a reason for that. We don't, we're not just making up those concepts. See, to grow into Christ's likeness is to have the faith that we have obtained saturate every aspect of our life. It grows in the sense that it takes over. It saturates. And so these godly qualities must both exist and overflow in your life. So they should be present and they should be taking over. It's more than just increasing. And so there's an obvious question for us as we observe ourselves and we observe one another. Are these qualities present in your life? If they're not, you need to feed your faith by adding them. Second, are these qualities taking over your life? You need to feed your faith by expanding them, by restoring the ones that have been neglected. Again, I'm trying to show you biblical concepts and parallels to the terms that we hold out to you and why you see them in discipleship and the growth and the knowledge of God as we talk about a process for discipleship. So real quick, some benefits of nourishing our faith. First, convictional effort. Verse 8, you see that there. They keep you from being ineffective in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll talk more about this in just a minute, but knowledge here is right discernment. It's convictional understanding. In other words, it is an actionable belief. It is the truth that compels you to act. And in this way, Peter is saying it will keep you from being lazy, wasting time, undisciplined. That's the idea here behind ineffective. 
Same word is used by Paul in Titus chapter 1, verse 12. He says, liars, evil beasts, lazy, there's our word, gluttons. This convictional effort of the knowledge of who God is and what he has done and what he brings into our life, it changes the way we see the world and it gives us a conviction that compels us to act. A convictional effort because a nourished faith guards against apathy and laziness. It's why James says faith without works is dead. Next you see a growing conviction. Again, same thing, verse 8, keep you from being unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the same nourishment that keeps our faith active, keeps our faith growing in the knowledge of Jesus. So what's the point? Watch, subtle difference. It's one thing to be compelled to zeal and effort, but you can apply zeal and effort and not produce fruit. But here Peter is saying, These traits, these qualities, this outflowing of faith that's at work in your life, feeding your faith, will keep you from being unfruitful. Your effort will produce specifically in the knowledge of Jesus. In other words, if you feed your faith, you will grow into a deeper understanding of who God is. And that very understanding will do a work in you and compel you to act and produce fruit. And in verse 10 and 11, that fruit is def- like defined really by confirming our very calling and election. It says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Not only will you produce fruit, but that fruit will bear witness of your election. It will bear witness of the faith you have obtained. Some of you are going through your life as a Jesus follower and you are truly following Jesus. He has redeemed you and yet you are years in just circling the assurance of your salvation. You have not fed your faith and there are not fruits that are confirming your election, you are stifling it. And Peter says, not only will you produce fruit, but you will produce fruit that bears witness of your election. Fruit from an an obtained faith with precious and very great promises. Quick rabbit, just wanna make sure you catch this. The assurance of your salvation in the New Testament is never a memory exercise. Never. You'll never read about it like that. You'll never read anywhere in your New Testament. The assurance of your salvation is remembering. It's not like that, ever. Every time, the assurance and the evidence, the fruit of your salvation is made known in the active fruit and work of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's in your growth. You say, 
that, is that back on me and my effort? No. What's that saying? The same power of God that saved you, the same power of God that declared you righteous is at work in you, conforming, transforming you into the very image of Christ. You're going to grow. You're going to feel conviction. You're going to produce fruit. That work is within you. Peter's saying, as you feed your faith, one of the great benefits is that you will see confirming fruit of your calling and election. But there are dangers of depriving your faith as well. First, you lose sight of the precious and great promises obtained. Verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. You have, again, been granted these great and precious promises, but if you deprive your faith, you will lose sight of those promises, and you will only see the present. You will lose your gaze into the absolute truth of who God is. You will no longer strain forward and find a hope in what is to be revealed, but you will only see the present because in our flesh we are bent to see God and his will through our present. But if we feed our faith and keep our focus on Christ, we will feed our faith to see the present through God and his will. I love Psalm 95. It's kind of probably just the inner middle schooler in me, to be honest, but I like it. In verse 5, the psalmist writes, How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, present, They are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. See, in the faith that we have obtained, our eyes have been opened to the knowledge of Jesus. Feed your faith, lest you forget and return to the foolishness that was in your thinking and mind before. Second, we we can forget our profession The next two are a little bit more implied in the context of what's here than they are direct, but I just want you to see them. Uh, Peter goes on and he says that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. When he uses this word cleanse, it probably immediately takes your mind back to baptism. If it didn't, I assure you his original audience would have thought that way. It is the profession, the public profession of the faith obtained to the world that is there. It is the symbolic death to self, buried old self, raised new in Christ Jesus. It is the telling of the world that you have obtained a faith that Jesus is God and you belong to him. Your life is in him. And when we feed our faith, we keep that profession of faith in front of us. But when we deprive our faith, we forget the implications in daily life of what it means 
to proclaim the old self buried, and I walk new in Jesus. Third, we diverge our life from our faith obtained, our living hope. It's the overarching implication of everything that's kind of being said here. Our life diverges from the faith that we have obtained. We cease living according to our living hope and instead we fall back into the foolishness and the despair and the actions and the routines and the patterns and the desires that were of the old self. leaves us susceptible to being carried away. It leaves us at risk of losing our own stability. It makes us an easy target for the false teachers, which is where Peter is going to go and spend most of his letter. And so there are benefits of nourishing our faith and dangers of depriving our faith are these qualities yours are they present and are these qualities saturating are they taking over so let's spend the rest of our time and just go through them first Jesus followers strive to feed their faith with excellence verse 5 for this very reason make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue now the word virtue here it means excellence it, it specifically means moral excellence excellence it's the same word that you found back in verse 3 he has called us to his own excellence that is the excellence of Jesus now that's important because you're getting your standard right off the bat your standard is not your grandmother your standard isn't the pastor your standard isn't that friend that's beside of you your standard isn't the world around you it is the very excellence of Jesus his holiness is what we have been called and set apart for. His righteousness. And so it's important right off the bat to understand that we have been called to something that can only be found in grace. Such excellence cannot be found just from within. It's not found from just trying harder. Such excellence is only found in Jesus. And so having obtained saving faith, grace, we are set apart for Christ-likeness. The Jesus follower isn't therefore satisfied with compromise. Instead, the Jesus follower feeds their faith and longs with zeal for excellence. For the holiness of Jesus to be fulfilled in us. As a result, the Jesus followers embrace things like correction. You say, why would we need to embrace correction? Because where I am and where the standard of Christ's holiness is, that is a massive gap. And with every step of longing in passion, pursuit, I'm going to fall over myself a hundred times. You ever feel that way? 
you know what I want around me? Are people who love Jesus and love me enough not to just say every time, it's okay, just stay here. It's really hard. I want people around me who love me enough and love Jesus enough they're like, come on, come on, get up, we got to keep going. Life is over here. They're not beating me down. But hope is alive. And it's not in settling here in your compromise, but it's in Jesus. What are we doing? Come on, let's go. Don't you want to run the race with people like that? Oh, that we would embrace biblical humility, that would know in our sin we're going to stumble over ourselves. But the goal isn't to make ourselves look good or feel good. The goal is Jesus. That we would seek to grow with zeal. See, our faith is striving for it. It has been declared of us, and we long for it, because it is life, it's Jesus. And so our effort is to aim for the fullness of the faith obtained in Jesus. Listen to the way that Paul says it in Ephesians 4, verse 13, until we all attain the unity of faith, notice the parallel, and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. What's that mean? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. But how do we know what is excellent? How do we really know what's Christ-like? Next big idea. Jesus' followers strive to feed their excellence with knowledge. Virtue with knowledge. Church, Jesus is our example. He defines our excellence. It is revealed in Christ, in Jesus, through his word. Now, Peter's going to continue to build on that idea throughout this chapter. And he's going to make sure that we understand that we can stand on the word of God and the power that is in the very revelation that is in our Bibles. But for now, the point that I want to make sure you catch is the connection back just a few verses before in this word grace and peace, in the knowledge of God. See, knowledge isn't just head knowledge. But be careful, because what we like to do when we hear that is go, yes, and excuse ourselves from growing in an increased head knowledge and understanding. You, it's not, the knowledge here is not limited to head knowledge, but I want to tell you something, you got to know it. And so there is a call to study and to learn, but the knowledge here is more than that. It is an actionable belief. It is a big truth, so powerful, so revealing that it takes over your life, that it becomes a conviction. It is not simple information. It is life-steering. It is convictional. It is foundational. It changes the way you live. Think of it this way. This is a good example. It, 
if Jesus is in my life, if Jesus is my life, he is above all things. He's above my comfort. He's above my job. He's above my kids. He is my life. He's not just primary. He's all of it. And I see all those things through him. And in so verse 2, the grace and peace is multiplied through a deepening conviction, knowledge, of who he is. Grace, meaning gifts, I do not deserve. Peace, meaning rest and security and standing before a righteous God. And so the effort is to anchor our mind with conviction into the revelation of God. Listen to John 8, 31. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Next, Jesus' followers strive to feed their knowledge with self-control. Knowledge with self-control. Again, this is building to a lot of focus on false teaching and false teachers. And one of the points that Peter will make is one of the same points that is made throughout Scripture is these false teachers seek their own desire. One of the ways you can spot them and identify them is their lack of self-control. Jesus' followers feed their faith with self-control. This conviction, this knowledge that we're talking about. Church, listen, it cannot exist without self-control. What good is discernment if incapable of practicing it? So what's that look like? Think of Matthew 5, 29, and Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Let me try to frame it this way. The strongholds that we fight, I mean, the ones that, man, that temptation comes back and it just feels like it's just beating you again and again and again. Those strongholds in our life, they are more of a fight against self-control than they are those specific actions. Say, so what do you mean? When you think of those strongholds, those things that grab a hold of you, the, the things like gossip, the things like lust, the things like anger, the things like anxiety. So often we just want the temptation to go away. It's like someday we're just going to wake up and We'll just pray, or, and it's just going to go away, and maybe that happens to you, and praise the Lord if that measure of grace is given to you. But for many of you, you'll struggle with anxiety your whole life. You'll struggle with lust your whole life. You're going to struggle with anger your whole life, with gossip and slander your whole life. What do you do? Learn self-control. What is self-control? Self-control is on the good day, having the awareness that it's a weakness and throwing out any possibility so that when you're tempted later, you can't fall. Self-control says, I'd rather pluck out my eye than miss out on life that is in Jesus. And so if that means I get rid of every computer in my house, I do it. If that means I stop having these one-on-ones that leans me into gossip and slander, I stop doing it. Whatever it means for you, you take that step, you pay those expenses. Why? Because to control and to discipline yourself toward life is worth it. 
So our effort is to discipline our life into submission to the revelation of God. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. How? Jesus' followers strive to feed their self-control with enduring conviction. Self-control with steadfastness is the word in the ESV that we're using. It means enduring conviction. It means never giving in. It, it, the best way I can probably say it is under temptation, but not giving in. Compelled by the flesh to give in, but not death before compromise. Why? Because there's life in Jesus. If you were here with us in the spring and you studied through 1 Peter, how can this not like bring back memories of Peter who's writing about looking forward and our living hope that surpasses the suffering of the day? A living hope so secure in the future that enduring the present is worth it regardless of the cost. Why? Because there's life in Jesus. And I have obtained faith in him. My knowledge of who he is and who I am in his light is made more known to me. And so there is this effort to be resolved by focusing forward according to the revelation of God. Listen to the way Paul writes to the Philippians. Philippians 3 verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this. Our context, this, meaning this excellence where I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Next big idea, Jesus' followers strive to feed their enduring conviction with Christ-like living, godliness. means Christ-likeness. To be like God, to live like him, to pursue him. Let me give you a little bit more of a kind of a poetic picture of this. It is the authentic worship in the saturation of our life. As the knowledge of God saturates our life, there is worship in the way that we live. It is the adorning saturation of Christ-likeness in all aspects of our life. It is daily. It is enduring. It takes up our cross, puts death to self, and proclaims life in Jesus. It is the putting off of the old and the putting on of the new and presenting your life as a living sacrifice. Consider how Paul wrote to the Romans, Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, 
which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Two more quickly. The Jesus followers strive to feed their Christ-like living with brotherly kindness, brotherly affection. The word here is Philadelphia. You can remember that, right? So the city of brotherly love, that's where it comes from. It's right here, same word. Brotherly affection. True Jesus followers feed their faith, listen, by embracing their family. I don't just look out and say brother by accident. Adopted into the family of God, we are brothers and sisters united in Christ Jesus. There is a picture of adoption that is happening in the faith that has been obtained. And true Jesus followers feed their faith by embracing their family. One of the great and beautiful pictures of adoption isn't just the day the adoption goes through. If you've ever, I I have... My family has some adoption in it. If your family does, you're going to relate to this. There is a process. There is a time in which those people no longer just accept, but they begin to identify as part of the family. I'm not talking about just the name. I'm talking about the level of trust. I'm talking about belonging. And where they go, that's my dad. That's my mom. That's my brother. That's my sister. This process of identifying one another as family, when we look around, we feed our faith by acknowledging we are assembled together with not just some random people that showed up on a Sunday at the same time in the same place, but we are bound eternally in Christ Jesus as brothers and sisters, and so we embrace one another as family. I love Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another. And showing honor. Why? We're family. Finally, Jesus' followers strive to feed their brotherly kindness with love. Last point as the team comes up. The declaration of love is just the beginning. It is not the destination. It is the saturation that is at work that is defined in the very declaration that we live through. So what does that mean? When I declare my love for my wife, listen, the declaration for me isn't enough. See, if the declaration is true, my love is active. What's that mean? It means I'm going to feed it. It means I want it to grow. It means in my humility, I recognize its inadequacy. And I long for it to grow. 
1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I don't know about you. I've got a lot to grow in in that. And because I love my wife, I long to grow in it. There's not a sense of arrival. There's a longing to grow. How much more knowing I was once separated from God and dead in my sin and he loved me so much that he gave his only begotten son Jesus that through the faith that I've obtained by the very grace of God I have life. How much more do I not long to grow? To make every effort to supplement my faith. To serve one another through love. Listen to Galatians 5.13. For you were called the freedom, brothers. You've been set free. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Church, we have obtained a precious faith. It is great. And the promises are eternity changing. And for this very reason, make every effort to grow it, to nourish it. Pursue it with zeal that it might not just increase that it might saturate your life. Does that sound costly? Yes. Does that feel expensive to lose everything? Yes. But if you have obtained true saving faith in Jesus, listen to me. The very proclamation of that faith declares he is worthy. And you have nothing, nothing but blessing and increase to gain because there is life and life in him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the faith obtained. Father, for those of us who, by your grace, We have obtained faith, redeeming, reconciling faith. Father, I pray that you would give us the wisdom, the zeal to feed that faith. May we slow down in our mind. May you give us the wisdom to not be distracted by the things of this world, but to set our gaze ahead To see Jesus and life that is in him. You have given us everything we need for a life of godliness. Awaken that in my heart and the heart of this church. Grow it in us. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here, even as we sing this song and we worship, if there's anyone here who has not obtained faith, 
that redeems them and saves them. Lord, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would overwhelm them with your love in this moment. That they would cry out to you for the first time in prayer and say, death to self and life in your son Jesus. It is mine. Father, we praise you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.